0: Welcome to Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, My name is Christos. I'll be your server. Have you dined with us before?
2: Uh, Died with you?
0: Dined. I'm sure I said dined with us.
2: No, we haven't.
0: We offer an unrivaled menu of Greek delicacies. Seared mullet, simmered squid, kid goat, free-range lamb, emotionally dominated pork.
2: I don't see any menus
0: we do things a little differently. Just say what you want and then run down that dark passage and by the time you reach the center chamber, your food will be waiting. What was that? That's Marty. Who's Marty? Long story. The owner's wife had a child by a bull who was sent here by the god Poseidon, who expected the owner to sacrifice the bull, but he didn't, so You get Marty.
2: He's a monstrosity.
0: He's mostly just depressed. He doesn't have friends, doesn't date. He's angry at the gods who made him and full of rage at humankind and cattle. But there's a sweetness in Marty that most people miss. I think he just needs a forever home that's not a labyrinth where the floors heat up to scorching temperatures.
2: Say that last part... About the floors?
0: Oh, as you're running, the floors become the cooking surface for your eventual meal. That's why we call it Pan's Labyrinth.
2: You know, I just wanted a nice night out with my girlfriend. It's a really special anniversary for us, and we just wanted some wine and a little delicious food, and now you're telling me the soles of our feet are going to be scorched and charred, and then we may be ravaged and killed by a horned abomination? I ought to put this on Yelp.
0: Oh, you'll definitely Yelp. Everybody yelps. That's Marty's impatient sound.
2: I can't stand it. Here's a show about mazes and labyrinths. And now he was stuck in a corn maze for three days and ate a hipster, Colin McEnroe.
3: I didn't eat a hipster. I, at least I'm fairly sure I didn't need Do they wear hats? I might have eaten a hipster. I was stuck in that maze for a really long time. All right, so one thing that we're going to tell you right away is that mazes and labyrinths are not the same thing, but we are doing a show today about mazes and labyrinths, or perhaps labyrinths and mazes, because I think labyrinths kind of come first. But rather than have me blunder around trying to work out these distinctions, uh, let's go immediately to one of our guests, uh, Jeff Sayward, a co-founder of Labyrinthos, a resource for the study of mazes and labyrinths, and the author of Magical paths, labyrinths and mazes in the 21st century. First of all, uh, Jeff Sayward, welcome to our show. Good afternoon. And so let's not start in the 21st century, though. Uh, Let's start uh, in the past. Well, let's start with that distinction, first of all. Explain the difference between a labyrinth and a maze.
4: It's always a, a good question. And if you look in a dictionary, you will probably find that it says a labyrinth is a maze and a maze is a labyrinth. But the distinction that's grown up in recent years is that labyrinths have a single pathway that leads from the entrance to the goal. There is no getting lost. There are no dead ends. It is just one path in and the same path invariably back out. Mazes, on the other hand, are designed to deceive, and they have numerous pathways and lots of dead ends and... Complication, Um, and that's kind of where the opinion on the definitions has settled in recent years.
3: Well, I think we can live very comfortably with that particular distinction. So um, labyrinths have existed for a very, very long time. And if they didn't exist to do what mazes do, which is either to test people or to let people have a lot of fun, kind of getting lost in a fairly safe way, if labyrinths exist for some other purpose, what is that purpose?
4: Herein lies the $64 million question. Um, The problem is that labyrinths have been around for at least 4,000 years uh, as as a symbol, as a device, as something that's laid out on the ground or constructed. And nobody bothered to write down what the instructions were 4,000 years ago, so we really don't know quite what the original purpose was. But over the years, they've served many different purposes. They've been the pathway to salvation, the path to follow through life in modern times, a spiritual exercise. Many, many different purposes in many different parts of the world over the course of that 4,000 years or so.
3: Um, it. It. I mean. I guess the easy way to think about this, maybe not the correct way, but the easy way, is that labyrinths, in some way, provide a mirror of our. Own experience. Uh, I know there are labyrinths constructed alongside prehistoric burial grounds uh, in southern Sweden and, and in Arctic Russia, uh, and, and so that would be one thought, right? We're we're actually in a labyrinth right now, all of us. We're we're and we're heading towards a destination, it happens to be our death.
4: Indeed. And and, and many people uh, kind of look at particularly some of those early labyrinths and consider them to be a reflection of the complexity of life and its inevitable goal um, or the correct path to follow through life. And, you know, for, for some, those are two different things. For others, they're the same.
3: Um, now, in, in the introduction that you heard, there was an evocation of probably the most famous labyrinth in in story and or fable, and that is uh, in uh, the labyrinth of Minos um, and the Minotaur. How how true is that? I know archaeologists are always thinking maybe they've even found that labyrinth.
4: Well, yes, I mean the, the story of the Minotaur, of course, is a legend, um, but the legend says that that took place at Knossos on the island of Crete. And, of course, if you go to Knossos, you will find the remains of the Br- Bronze Age Palace, which is known as the Labyrinth. Um, so, clearly, that is where the story took place. But the interesting thing is that the symbol that's used to denote that story, it would appear exists long before the legend could have, could have been constructed. So there's this very complex interweaving of legends and symbols that has been going on with this story of the labyrinth and the minotaur and various other variants upon that story theme around the world. So,
3: but, if you think about that story uh, that fact the fact pattern of that story it 's different from what we 're talking about most of the time if we 're talking about most labyrinths of, as having maybe kind of a ceremonial slash religious uh, purpose uh, a way of uh, of walking through our understanding of what it means to be alive and human. Well, this story is really different. It's about a labyrinth that's used to mess with people, uh, a labyrinth in which people are placed without their consent. Um, So, I mean, were labyrinths, have labyrinths been used that way or is that just a fable?
4: That, 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 of course, is the really rather peculiar thing about the story. The story talks about this complex series of underground passageways in which the Minotaur is imprisoned and only Theseus could navigate his way with the help of the ball of thread supplied by Ariadne. But the symbol that's used um, is a very simple thing, which, you know, there are no dead ends. And, uh, it, it's all about this mix of myth and symbol.
3: All right. So... um Uh, we're going to add another uh, voice to this conversation. Uh, Jeff is still going to be with us, but uh, let me just do this actually physically. There we go, on the board. Uh, Joining us now is uh, Douglas Quenqua, a New York-based writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, BuzzFeed, The Atlantic, and more. Um, So you, a couple of years ago, uh, Doug, wrote a piece about a kind of labyrinth revival. Uh, Now, I I should say that um, here in Connecticut, I was aware of kind of spiritually themed labyrinths around the state way back in the seventies, but but they were few and far between. You could count them on one hand. hand. Um, Something else is going on now, Doug. What what is it? Uh,
1: Well, thanks for having me, Colin. Um, You know, there's the idea that they are spiritually, uh, that that labyrinths are spiritually healing, that they are a form of meditation. I think, yeah, that was was around in the seventies. I think there was a a clinical side to it that happened in the past ten years or so. Excuse me. Um, where you started seeing them constructed in prisons in hospitals uh in rehab facilities there are even people who have canvassed uh canvas labyrinths now who visit these sorts of places and and you know sort of work with the uh with the patients or the inmates um, and while it's you know it's, it's it's certainly a difficult thing to prove clinically uh that labyrinths have any sort of real health impact uh it, it was it was seen as a calming thing uh that a lot of people did at least anecdotally say, This really helped me, this helped center me. So I think that the difference in the revival this time around was it was uh, it was much more of a you know a, a hospital rehab uh, prison kind of a thing.
3: Right. So uh, you you focused uh, for a bit on a prisoner, a 37 year old prisoner, uh, serving 10 to 12 uh, for uh, for a larceny uh, in Massachusetts. And and in your article, Doug, he really does seem to have found some missing part of himself or some important piece of of life information by doing this labyrinth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He he was skeptical. He signed up for a class. I, I don't think he had a lot of choice. I think he had to sign up for some kind of class, and he chose labyrinths, probably thinking it would be you know a pretty uh, low effort. And uh, he admitted you know his first couple classes, he kind of sat there and was not into it and kind of was laughing at it. Uh, but then he showed up to one class and he was very stressed, and he uh, found himself walking in the labyrinth, and something happened to him. He, uh, he, his breathing changed, he felt centered. Uh, and he became a big fan of walking the labyrinth. Did it? Uh, did it pretty often, and really credited it with helping him calm his mind, and and help him think about what he had done in his life, and uh, sort of set him on a path—no pun intended—toward uh, a uh, sort of a different life.
3: So let me turn back to you, uh, Jeff Sayward. I mean, maybe what we're seeing here is uh, a nice corollary to the conversation that we were having before which is that if you look back at ancient labyrinths they didn't leave instruction manuals they didn't explain what it was for so we project onto that whatever reasonable conclusions that we can draw but but it's almost as though the way we're talking about labyrinths now Jeff is, is sort of the same it's kind of what are you going to use the labyrinth for whatever it is that you you need right now that could possibly pop up inside its passages does that make is that a good way of thinking about
4: Yes. And, and this, this has happened repeatedly through the history of labyrinths. You know, most of those early ones from thousands of years ago, we really don't know how they were used because there is no written detail. But once you get, for instance, to the Roman period, they're being used there as symbolic of the story of Theseus the Minotaur, and it's symbolic of the structure of Roman cities and towns, so they're being laid in the floors of mosaics. In the medieval world, they are symbolic of the journey through life, the pathway to redemption. Um, mm. In the Victorian period, they were being put into churches and cathedrals because they were a model of the perfection of medieval architecture. Now, in the modern period, we've come back and we using them in a spiritual way, um, and once again, you know, that's what's needed now, and that's why in the last 20, 30 years or so, there's probably been more labyrinths constructed than at any stage during their history.
3: Um, And Doug, I mean, another reason they're being constructed or a reason they're being used is in the sphere of medicine, where we're finding what? That once again, getting into that sort of changed mind space that you're in in the labyrinth can help you with problems you're having in your body?
1: You know, that's probably, uh, I I don't know that I would go that far to say that it could have physical impact. You know, again... No one's really. There have been a couple of very small studies showing that people felt better using the labyrinth. Um, but even even clinicians who swear by the labyrinth are, are perfectly willing to admit that you probably couldn't do you know a double blind study that proved anything with a labyrinth. Um, so the, the idea that it could you know uh, somehow yeah people say oh it helps with the nausea from chemotherapy mm-hmm. and you know probably in the same way that meditation or yoga does sure it probably helps like that. Um, you know, but whether it has real physical benefits, aside from, you know, a good, you know, would it be more of a physical benefit than, say, a walk around the block, uh, is, is difficult to say.
3: Um, Jeff, do you have any workable hypotheses about why there would be an interest rate? I mean, what Doug is describing, Jeff, does sound like, um, you know, more being built than, than ever before. Why
4: would that be? What <clears throat> Once again, when you look back at the history of them, you find that labyrinths tend to crop up in societies around the world at times when those societies are undergoing um, dramatic expansion or, or really particularly um, important changes. Um, and sometimes it's about just the, the mindset of those, those civilizations, those, those societies. And other times it's about changes in information and technology um, and ideas. So in the past, where labyrinths have spread relatively slowly in quite confined areas, today they're spreading very rapidly because of big advances in technology and the fact that we have the Internet um, and can share ideas and trade ideas with people on the other side of the world in moments. Um, Mm -hmm. It opens up the use of labyrinths in whole different ways, and whenever you get to one of those points in history, it seems that labyrinths, and to some extent mazes that we'll come back to, um, suddenly flare up and, and become relevant again to society because they find new uses for them.
3: No, we should say, uh, Doug, that one other thing, one other use is one. It's sort of interesting, first of all, what Jeff is saying, because I I think another appeal of the the labyrinth might be to disengage from all that technology that made it possible to spread ideas about labyrinths. Now you leave your smartphone behind and everything else behind and and go to a place where you can kind of settle your mind down. But, Doug, it it does seem, though, another group of people who might have labyrinths uh, are one, two and three percenters, right? I mean, at minimum, we know that Ben Bradley, currently being celebrated uh, in the movie The Post, uh, had a pretty impressive labyrinth?
1: He did. Ben Bradley uh, built a labyrinth for his wife, Sally. Uh, she was getting into—she's uh, a lifelong atheist who was getting into religion a bit uh, in her 60s, and she was exploring various paths to uh, to spirituality, and so he built her a, a labyrinth, uh, which is still— uh, which is uh still around in uh in, in Maryland I believe. Um but yeah look the one thing you definitely need for a labyrinth is land. Uh now some people might say, well of course you can you know you can have a canvas labyrinth in your backyard, you can have it in your living room if you want. Uh for the most part you need to have some sort of uh at least a plot of land where you can uh, you know, lay out some sort of pattern, um, but yeah, it, it does tend to be the kind of thing that is uh, uh, popular among the you know the, the spiritually searching set. Um, but you know, by no means is it you know it, it, as opposed to say like a um, you know a, a corn maze. You don't need that much land, so it could be uh, it could be the kind of thing that really is, the barrier to entry for creating a labyrinth is, is not is not as high as you might think.
3: Right.
4: So
1: mm-hmm. I in, mean, in yeah. indeed, if I could just
4: interject, sure. there's been some really interesting advances in in the way that labyrinths occur. Constructed In recent years, one particular one um, is the use of projected labyrinths, labyrinths of light, which are completely ephemeral um, and exist simply by projecting the image from overhead or at a high point onto the ground um, that disappear at the flick of a switch. Hmm. All
3: right, so uh, we're going to transition from uh, labyrinths to mazes. We want to thank our writer Douglas Quenqua uh, for joining us. Now, his article ran in 2015 in, in the Atlantic. Uh, you are going to meet—I don't know—the Wayne Gretzky of, of designing mazes. I don't know. I don't. on am the Michael Jordan of mazes. Uh, you are going to meet the man you call when you really meet, need the most elite maze made possible. <laughs> All right, we're back. This is a show entirely devoted to the subject of labyrinths and mazes. I should say that in our third and final segment, we are going to leave... Uh, humankind behind uh, and uh, talk about the animals who are studied. And it was sort of interesting because Douglas Quenqua kept saying you couldn't do a double blind study of the actual medical or calming value uh, of labyrinths. But of course, mazes are used all the time uh, to study uh, at least animal behavior, cognition, memory, brain damage, all kinds of things. Anyway, that'll be our third and final segment today. But right now we're going to switch from labyrinths to mazes. Still with us is Jeff Sayward, co-founder of Labyrinthos a resource for the study of both mazes and labyrinths, and the author of Magical Paths, Labyrinths, and Mazes in the 21st Century. Joining us right now is, as I say, uh, pretty much the guy you call when you really have to have the best possible maze. Adrian Fisher is the director of the Adrian Fisher Design and internationally recognized as one of the world's leading maze designers. Uh, He has won uh, awards. You wouldn't even necessarily know that you could win awards for this, but he's set nine world records and he's won gold medals. uh, And Adrian Fisher, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. Um, This is a, I think some might say, a rather peculiar career choice. How is it you come to be uh, a a maker of mazes?
5: It's it's less of a crevice market, uh, you know, (laughs) rather than a niche. The crevice (laughs) is so small, you know, you you really are shoulder to shoulder to the edges. But it's specialised, and it's the way the world's going. It's like a form of art. You know, I know particular artists who specialize very narrowly, but it becomes extremely exciting because it takes them to a, a further point. And in the design of mazes, there's lots of different ways of building mazes. Uh, it depends on how you would approach it. I, th- I think it's more to do with doing things together as a shared experience and going along with a common consensus and coming out walking taller because you did it together and you stayed together and you feel good about it. and You discovered things you never expected together. And uh, in that way, it's a very fulfilling, uh, friend-affirming and life-affirming and family-affirming activity. And as such, it's like a form of art. It, It is actually a very rewarding thing and lots of exercise.
3: <laughs> so you have uh, created over 700 mazes in more than 30 countries. Is there oh, a... like
5: 40 countries actually?
3: Oh, 40 countries now. Uh, and I understand China is one of the places that uh that mazes are are sought after and loved. Tell us about China and their fascination with mazes.
5: Um I got back a couple of weeks ago from a trip around China and we struck three years business in the first 8 days. <laughs> Um, there's a tremendous excitement and interest in the leisure industry and development, anyway. Maze is a, a, a very attractive part of it. And, uh, you know, they're really excited and positive. So uh, we're, we're very thrilled to be working with some of our colleagues there.
3: Um, It seems to me that one of the more uh, daring-do acts of building a maze uh, was the one that you did on the side of a volcano on the border of North Korea. So you've got uh, two possible sources of danger there. Tell us about that project.
5: Um, That one, actually, uh, we were going to go up to do the site visit, but actually it was considered probably too cold. It was minus 20 degrees the day I was going to go, four nights ago. Um, So we actually had a very comfortable... um, meeting in beijing but actually it was really good that the air quality is, is vastly better in beijing than it was even two or three years ago mm. you can see it for a mile before you hit the fog or smog but we were talking about a, a, a volcano where the international line goes through the middle of the crater lake mm. and there's no boundary if you wander too far you might suddenly find you know you're asked to stand still and um then you'd be led away and You can't run. (laughs) So Just make sure you know where the international boundary is before you get too close to it.
3: All right. So, uh, Jeff Sayward, um, you know, we were talking about the distinction at the beginning. um, But, um, Jeff, was there sort of a way in which the labyrinth, which is a simpler creature, ideally or or preferably with sort of a a direct, uh, unwavering path to its inner chamber, turned into the maze? Can we sort of see a point where that happened?
4: look back around 500 or so years um, you see that labyrinths which were being placed in the cathedrals maybe seven or 800 years ago across northern Europe, in France, in Italy in particular um, start to be constructed in the gardens of wealthy princes and well-to-do gentlemen um, and at first they are building little low labyrinths Maybe using things like box hedging. Um, But as those labyrinths start to grow taller and taller, then they start to play with the designs and make them more complicated and introduce choices in the pathways, which clearly don't work on a two-dimensional construction. But once that design becomes three-dimensional, then you can hide where the pathways go. And we see that happening in garden designs around 500 years ago. Um, And by the 16th, 17th centuries in particular, you start to get more and more complex garden mazes being constructed.
3: Um, now, Adrian, there must be kind of a um, a sweet spot that you're looking for when you design a maze. You don't want a maze that is so hopelessly complex that people can't, in fact, get to their destination. On the other hand, it can't be so simple that people don't feel challenged by it. Is there a way that you can put into words what, what, what makes a good maze?
5: Um, yes, it's like um, ice skating, really. Uh, you can have up to six points for artistic impression and up to six points for technical merit. (laughs) And the technical merit is, was it a good challenge and a puzzle? And the artistic impression was, as a piece of, if you like, walk-through sculpture, was I moved by it? Mm. And you're playing off one of those factors against the other. If you make a maze, I can easily make a maze more difficult. I did one in um, Davis Farmland, five years in a row, and Larry Davis each year said, I cannot believe it. It takes them an average of 10 minutes longer than the same field last year um, and the answer was you can make things more and more and more tighten them up equally quite often i you know I've, I've designed puzzles for the world puzzle championships far too difficult and not fair on the families. so you tone it down until it's just right for the eight nine year olds perhaps who are going to aim tar- target market so it you can certainly tone up or tone down the the challenge uh, you can also make it obvious or less obvious what the hidden meanings, the mystery, the storyline is all about. And I think that's the fresh, modern way of looking at maze design, which was much less evident even to or 300 years ago.
3: Um, we're going to give, play a little clip of what happens when you don't hire Adrian Fisher. You hire some other maze designer who doesn't understand the subtlety, uh, the sweet spot that he just described, uh, and therefore uh, your visitors do get lost in the maze. Here's a nine one one call. Nine one one, the signs you put with the
1: address of your emergency. Hi, I just called. I'm still stuck at Cornish Farms. Okay. I, I don't see everybody. I'm really scared. It's really dark, and we got a three-week-old hey, baby just with relax. us. relax. Calm down. Your husband's with you, right? Yes, my okay. baby.
6: Can I talk to your husband? Say, hello, canine. Hello,
1: canine. Say it again so he can eat, because he can't see you. So say, hello, canine.
6: Hello, canine.
1: Keep going, sir. Doing something Hello, do? canine. We see a light. You're going to be okay, okay, all right? Thank you so much. You're welcome, all right? We thought this would be fun. Instead, mm-hmm. tonight, ma'am, Good.
3: All right, that, so they're actually sending a canine unit to track these people in the maze. That's why they're asking them to yell, hello, canine. So, Adrian, that must send chills up your spine. That's exactly the kind of thing you don't want people to have happen to them in a maze.
5: Um, well, it actually it does happen from time to time, not very often. Um, but it's quite character-forming, and people get over it. <laughs> and um, they feel the better for having overcome what is not exactly life-threatening. um I think we live in a world where far too sanitized. children aren't allowed to climb trees, they aren't allowed to get cut their knees when they go scrambling. they don't you know build rafts on rivers and you know we're losing an awful lot I mean there's a horrific statistic that something like two thirds of our children play essentially using a screen based system between their thumbs and don't know how to go out and have fun and dam up streams in the woods and build tree houses and things. Oh dear, oh dear. Uh, you know we we really have got to get a bit more <laughs> robust we 're not going to learn how to do things like that, and then you ask these young people to volunteer and you know put their lives at risk you know in military service and things you know the real world is needs preparation for and uh you know i 'm not trying to be brutal, but I think we ought not to get too precious Obviously, um, you, you, yeah. know, you don't want to, you don't want to violate health and safety you don 't have dangerous bridges you you do certainly want to help people get out but you know the way I design it, it's not a thing that goes on for very long before someone's distress becomes obvious.
3: Um, Yeah, Jeff Sayward, uh, I would imagine that this is not that... I mean, first of all, I think Adrian is making a great point, which is also um, a maze. And I remember being a kid and, and loving mazes, but part of the reason for loving mazes was there is some tiny inkling of concern, right? A maze isn't okay. any fun if you just absolutely know, you know how you're going to solve it and that you're going to solve it. You want some level of anxiety, right?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, part part of the the whole concept and the fun of entering into a maze is that uncertainty and is that fact that while you know that you are within a bounded area, you have no idea where that path's going to lead you. I was at... um, the Mirror Maze on Navy Pier in Chicago at Christmas um, with all its kind of, you know, scary features and, and things that pop up in front of you and so on. And, and even, even at my um, advanced age, um, it made me draw my breath in a few times and, and, and jump a couple of, <laughs> couple of occasions as I went round it. And that, I think, is part of what makes mazes so fun and so attractive to so many people.
3: Do Jeff do they sometimes build in little safety or 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 workarounds I mean
4: Well Yes, I mean, I mean, well, Adrian will know, I mean, the the famous story of the big, enormous hedge maze at um, Longleat House here in England, um, which we've, we all know here in England is a very, very familiar hedge maze and quite enormous. And when people started going in there, um, people were getting lost, so they gave little flags to people so that they could hold them up and wave them should they need um, assistance to for guidance to find their
3: way... Further in, or to get back out. <laughs> All right. So, um, Adrian, when when someone says maze to me, my mind immediately goes to a hedge maze. I've probably watched many, too many Masterpiece Theater episodes where there's uh, a hedge maze on the property of some grand old uh, manor. Um, but that that's arbitrary, right? You can make the uh, passages of a maze out of almost anything. So, so what what kinds of materials and barriers do get used?
5: Um. Well, I've, all, all as you say, lots of different kinds. Actually, um, the incidence of the flags that Jeff refers to was something I pioneered with Don France in the uh, cornfield maze mazes because unlike a hedge maze where you can just about see the heads of people, we couldn't see them when the corn was 12 feet high. <laughs> and we had a TV crew turn up in Massachusetts and they said, where are all the people? I said, well, occasionally, oh, there's one over a bridge. And, oh, it disappeared again. So by giving everybody a flag, you could suddenly say, oh, look, there's 400 flags. So, there you are, 400 people. And that's how that began. Then we reduced it down to one per team to keep the team together. Uh, But Longleat, they actually had a terrific thing. They introduced a telephone number, and it was great publicity. You know, if you really get lost, you could use your cell phone and dial for help. And uh, (laughs) that created further excitement and promotional value to the maze. It's so big, you need a telephone number.
3: Um, I feel as though that's, you know, defeats the whole purpose somehow. If you can phone your way out of a maze, you're, you're not... You're...
5: It's all part of the story and magic. It's so complex, you'll need a telephone. Right. <laughs> you didn't really, but um, it depends on how long you want to spend there. <laughs> uh, the great thing is it creates excitement and interest, and, you know, I've never been in something so difficult I needed a telephone, you know, to escape <laughs> by. I designed the one at Navy Pier, actually, so I'm very pleased that Jeff's been there recently, and... Uh, <laughs> It's still getting strong and oh, yes. providing still a challenge. There.
3: So he called that a mirror maze, Adrian? What's what what's a mirror maze? Well,
5: that's a mirror maze. That's a, uh, different arrangements of, of mirrors. I built 61 of them around the world, and they, they all have secret chambers. It looks six times bigger than it really is, and uh, it's very deceptive. And then we can make them on all kinds of storylines and adventures. And I've been pioneering in recent years all numbers of t- t- keynote chambers from bridges over infinity chasms, tapering chambers to do pre-shows, Ames Rooms, uh, upside-down chambers, uh, chambers with hidden portals and vortex tunnels uh, in a kaleidoscope, uh, a light maze. In in October in London, I actually created a light maze where the lights were all around you in all three dimensions going up, down, sideways. There's Hmm. all kinds of different ways. I even have a, a a turf labyrinth in my own garden here in Dorset in England. Uh, so that's uh, another flat turf example.
3: So um, there's some farmer who's listening right now and thinking, "Well, that all sounds great, and I've got uh, 20 acres that I could uh, dedicate to this purpose. Uh, maybe I'll hire this uh, guy you're interviewing, uh, this Adrian uh, guy, to come out and and make a really nice maze uh, for me. What's that going to cost the farmer? How much does it cost to have like a, you know an actual Adrian Fisher maze?"
5: It depends on how much time it takes to set up. The biggest costs are actually planting the field and so on. Nothing like 30 acres. I mean, the most appropriate size is six or eight acres Mm -hmm. uh, because it doesn't go on too long. Um, That was, I mean, eight eight or nine acres is the size we've been doing at Davis Mega Maze now in Massachusetts for over 20 years. And it's it's a great size because it it means that people have a nice entertainment to an hour or so, hour and a quarter. And it's great fun. Uh, You don't really want it much bigger. I've broken nine Guinness records, of which six were to do with corn mazes. Hmm. But once it got over about nine miles and about nineteen acres, uh, they ceased to be as entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I believe the record keeps on getting bigger and bigger for that. But I don't think I see any. I don't see any virtue in it.
3: Right, you want um, a diversion, not an ordeal. So
5: it's an entertainment. You want to yeah. finish it before you've had enough. <laughs>
3: exactly. And so, um, Jeff Sayward, is there? Um, I don't know. I keep thinking of the song "The Farmer and the Cattleman Can Be Friends." Can do labyrinth people and maze people kind of look askance at one another, Jeff?
4: This is an interesting one. I mean, there there's, there are those. Um that are in various camps. Um, There are those like myself, the historians, and and those that are particularly interested and fascinated by their designs and their evolution, um, that are equally fascinated by mazes and labyrinths and, and how they've developed over the years and spread around the world. There are those who would really probably maze fanatics that look at labyrinths and consider them to be ridiculously simple Um, and then there are the labyrinth enthusiasts who kind of look at mazes and think well what's the idea I mean they're just there for confusion, Um, that's not a labyrinth Um, it's one of those Venn diagrams where there are lots of intersecting circles, um, different different groups of people, but there is a little sweet spot in the middle where all of us come together and share our fascination and enthusiasm for them.
1: Well, the,
3: the two of you have been wonderful guests. Adrian Fisher is director of Adrian Fisher Design, internationally recognized as one of the world's leading maze designers. Jeff Sayward is co-founder of Labyrinthos, a resource for the study of mazes and labyrinths and the author of paths labyrinths and mazes in the 21st century we're going to pause here for a second and uh, when we come back we're going to talk about the animals who uh, who, who, who what who are in mazes uh, on our behalf uh, and we'll tell you a little bit more about the evolution of that kind of testing Find
1: me till spring. I'm lost in the-
2: I know, my parents drive me nuts too. Seriously, you know, when you say your dad is full of, you mean it for realsies. Ah! Oh, do you want to try doing the credits? Tell them who produced this episode. That's right, Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Oh, and say something about Amanda Fish. We need to talk more about the Me Too movement. The part of Bill Curry was played by. Why William Devane? You just like him. Okay, tomorrow we're getting out of this labyrinth and going skating with Tanya Harding and the nose. And now, back to. <laughs>
3: If you're just tuning in, that's a minotaur uh, helping out with the credits here. We've been talking about uh, the mazes and labyrinths that people uh, enjoy going through, either for diversion and entertainment or or for enlightenment and spiritual discovery uh, or calming and and therapy. Uh, But there's another group of beings who are quite familiar these days with mazes and have been for quite some time. They tend to be uh, rats and mice. Uh, We're going to talk about them right now uh, with Dr. Shuhan. He physician at Harvard Emergency Medicine at the, uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospitals. He's also the founder of May's Engineers. Welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So um, there is sort of this basic um, image, I think, that's imprinted in a lot of our brains, and it is, in fact, that lab technician with the white coat, and there's uh, rats and mice running through a, a maze, and maybe there's some cheese somewhere in, in that maze. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's a,
6: a little bit off. How, how off is it? Not that off. Uh, we don't use cheese anymore, but there are different uh, foods now. Uh, Fruit Loops are really popular. They're a little sweeter and a little tastier.
3: And but and does the maze look the way we think a maze looks? I mean, is it still passageways that go
6: left and right and and have Y turns? It depends. Uh, so this is, it's really uh, an interesting history on it. Um, you know, Back in the early 1900s, it used to look exactly like that. And a lot of the classical psychologists and neuroscientists actually used those kinds of mazes to do exactly the experiments you were talking about. So they would put cheese or food at the end of the maze, and they would learn. And those mazes were remarkable at teaching uh, and, and deducing how mice and rats learned and figuring out if drugs worked and if they were smarter, if they were dumber after a certain type of injury. So things like Parkinson's and traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's. Uh, What ended up happening in the last 30 to 40 years is that with modern technology, the mazes actually became a lot simpler. And so there are actually a lot of the more modern mazes are T mazes, so left, right, simple turns. uh, Just because of statistics, it's easier to get the measurements and easier to get the data from that. Uh, What ended up happening in the last maybe five years even is that... uh, when you automate all those things, a very, very simple maze, you actually just end up automating a, a very simple technology. And so a lot of the technology now is going back to these older types of mazes so that you can get the really, really complex maze, uh, but with all the new automation and technology, so you can really figure out how, is, how it is that uh, mice and rats are, um, are, are being affected by different types of drugs. So for traumatic brain injury, for Alzheimer's, for stroke, so that when you uh, come to the emergency department, uh, we're able to treat you with something a little bit more, uh, more effective.
3: All right, I want to come back to that technology and, and automation and- just a second, but yeah, those early rat mazes. Well, I, in, in just the segment that preceded this one, two of our guests were talking, I think, about the Hampton Court hedge yeah. maze, uh, and, and there was one of those for rats. That seems too complicated somehow, right? That's too complicated for a rat.
6: Uh, no, they, they were able to figure it out and learn how to do the Hampton Court maze. That was uh, a classic maze done by Tolman at University of Chicago, uh, where they would run mice and rats through the, the Hampton Court maze, and they would learn, and they would learn over, over a couple days, and it was incredibly sensitive to figure out how intelligent mice and rats were.
3: Now, oddly enough, a couple of days ago, we were doing a show about the intelligence of bees, uh, and uh, I discovered that bees uh, are studied in mazes, and that they actually can perform in mazes and can learn to recognize color signals about whether to turn left or right and remember those signals. uh, And so, I I don't know, why are we mainly talking about rats and mice? I mean, I I assume other animals are studied in in mazes.
6: Absolutely. Uh, Mice and rats are incredibly intelligent, and they've just been the standard bearer for almost hundred years. Um, we know a lot about their uh, chemistry, their neuroscience, their anatomy as well. And um, because we have those sensitive sites in the early 1900s, that we understand the, uh, the, the circuitry of mice and rats. And so we're able to tell if mice and rats are smarter or uh, dumber, if they, you know, if they have a certain injury or forgive them certain drugs. Uh, you can also do other animals, but it's taking a little bit longer for researchers to catch up on them. Uh, bumblebees, for example, have had incredible amount of research recently. And uh, there was a study uh, done just last year uh, where they made bees play soccer against each other in a maze and when they played soccer against each other you could actually tell and look at the neurons and how they fire and it's incredible looking at those different animal models and seeing uh, how they perform because now you have the technology to look at the brain and how it's functioning while they're behaving uh, so we've had more animals now things like bumblebees nematodes um, marmosets naked mole rats uh, pigs even pigs are widely used um, for traumatic brain injury uh, as a very popular model.
3: Um, you know, when we think maze, as I say, we have a particular image, but there are things that are called mazes in research that probably don't look very much like a maze to the average person. Tell, tell people about the, the Morris Water Maze.
6: Yeah, the Morris Water Maze is a fantastic in- test that's widely used. Um, anytime you see any research or study that says, in the newspaper that says, new drug uh, allows you to uh, become a smarter mouse. Right? Uh, that's because they tested mice and they threw them in a big tank of water, and what they, what they show is that they're able to find this hidden platform underneath the water. And, um, and this has been widely used for the last 30 or 40 years. You put the mouse in water, and it's supposed to find where the hidden target is. Mice that are a little smarter know how to swim directly to that target because they want to get out of the water. They don't like being in the water.
3: Right. So, um, so that's a maze in, in a different way. And the, the, right. the, the mouse still has to solve and perhaps remember a spatial problem. And, it's, and rather than being about the mouse trying to find a fruit loop, it's about the fact that the mice don't like swimming around in murky water.
6: Absolutely. And so a lot of the other uh, functions or categories of mazes don't tend to look like the classic mazes. The classic ones you think of tend to be the ones that test learning, their ability to learn, but there's ones in motor function. The motor functions uh, test your ability to, for example, cross a barrier to get a piece of cheese. Uh, The ones that are social, that's sociability uh, test your ability to choose between another mouse, uh, who's your friend or mate, and a piece of food. So sometimes if you would rather have food than a friend, and you can have other ones like anxiety and depression where you test how depressed they are, how anxious they are, and even things like exploration, how how badly they seek to find new things and new experiences. So those types of mazes tend to look very different than the classic learning maze.
3: So um, a, a few years ago in, in uh, Jim's uh, around the country, it became sort of, a, there was a vogue for these stationary bicycles where you looked at a screen and on the screen was a road and then you could pretend that you were uh, bicycling on that road and the even the difficulty of pedaling the bike would begin to m- kind of map onto the hill that you were seeing on this screen. But uh, you guys were way ahead of us on that one, right? Um, <laughs> the, this is something that is, a version of this has been done with rodents. Why build the maze when you can simply make the rodent experience a maze on what,
6: a kind of of a trackball. Yeah, um, so the trackball is a, is a virtual reality maze. The issue is that uh, rodents don't see that well, and so putting them in a virtual uh, realm doesn't work as well because they, they respond a lot better to touch, a lot better to uh, smells, noise, things like that. Versus humans, you know, we, we primarily use uh, the ability to see things, and so uh, having a virtual screen works really well. Uh, with mice, you tend to need other things like, um, oh, the, the fear of an open area or food, uh, things like that that don't translate quite as well to virtual reality.
3: Um, so are there, can you, Well, I mean, you, you sort of wear two hats here. So as a, a somebody with a, a lot of emergency room experience, yeah. can you point to things that uh, ways in which we humans are now treated either with drugs or something that, that is the result of this kind of maze research in rodents?
6: Absolutely. Almost every sort of type of successful neurological drug has come from this research. So, um, you know, if you think about what amazes, what amazes is telling you how the brain functions. It's the outcome of all of neuroscience, right? And so uh, any sort of drug that's been really successful has been because they realized it worked in mice. They Using it people, they realize it worked as well, and then they figure out how it works later on. Um, And so this really matters a lot because, um, especially in modern neuroscience research, uh, the outcomes for things like traumatic brain injury um, really matters to have the outcome function because when you have the traumatic brain injury or you hit your head really hard, you lose function in so many different ways, social ability, anxiety, depression, ability to learn, and all those things um, are tested in mice and rats before they go to humans. Um, So uh, depression drugs like uh, Lexapro or depression drugs like Prozac, those sort of medications, were all shown to be successful first in mice and rats, and they had less anxiety, less depression in those mazes, and then moved to humans where they should be very successful.
3: So earlier in our conversation, you were talking about uh, technology and automation. Uh, mm-hmm. You can design a very simple maze, but you can also design uh, yeah. a, a one that's technologically uh, pretty inva- advanced in terms right. of bells and whistles. Tell us about the labyrinth. It's interesting yeah. that your, your one of your top-of-the-line mazes is actually called the labyrinth.
6: It's absolutely. This is all. Awesome. Our, our concept car of, of a maze where essentially what we do is we take all the most modern technology so um, we put them in a big box and it's got over a hundred doors and those doors can make any sort of maze out of that same uh, spatial uh, place so you can do all the classic types of mazes in one apparatus versus having to buy a bunch of different mazes uh, you know ultimately research dollars and how they get spent it really matters at the same time we're able to do things like operant conditioning this is a type of maze where we put them in a box and we force them to press buttons like press, press touch screens and our ability to uh, put them in a box and use the doors as almost like a button um, uh, really helps the ability to uh, test entirely new ways of thinking. And you can also uh, function within that box too to um, to live with an automated trainer, so an automated mouse that plays with them, interacts with them. That does the experiment for you because when you have a person hovering over a maze, what ends up happening is the mice get really scared of the, p- the person hovering. And so that ends up affecting the results a lot. So um, within this box is a living um, uh, a machine of a mouse that does all the experiments for you, so it automates the entire thing. Um, it's artificially intelligent, captures big data, and you can then uh, have all the maze in one, and we call that behavior core in one. And that's really what we hope is the future.
3: Right. And so this the, this uh, high-tech maze, even what? It sort of cleans itself, right? It disinfects itself?
6: Absolutely. So as the doors move up and down, it's like a car wash. The, do- the doors automatically get cleaned. That's one of the biggest issues with modern mazes, that mice and rats, they poop in them. And so it ends up affecting it. And you have to stop. You have to clean it out uh, before you're having more trials. But now with this uh, device, you can actually uh, do without any of that. It can run by itself for weeks and weeks on end.
3: Right. And as you say, I mean, the more that you have to stop and human beings have to to be involved and in, I mean, the more the mice are reacting maybe to some of their their human overseers. Uh, so you want to get them out of the picture as much as possible. Let me ask you this. Um, you know, what we spent part of the show today talking about people who use labyrinths and mazes uh, recreationally or for spiritual uplift. I don't know, can, can, like on a weekend, would you do something like that? Or
6: are these things not fun for you? I would love it. Aren't those escape rooms really popular now? Yes, yes right? absolutely. There's so many escape rooms, and that's just a modern... Human maze, right? Uh, that, that is a type of maze that uses uh, learning, it tests our ability to explore, it, tells, it, it tests our social function. And those, uh, that's actually a hallmark of a good maze, right? To test multiple uh, dimensions of your cognition, right?
3: Yeah. So, all right. Well, uh, enjoy, then I say. And Dr. Shuhan He, a physician at Harvard Emergency Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham and, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospitals, also the founder of Maze Engineers. Go to them when you need a maze to test the rats and mice in your life. We have to go, too. Thanks to Josh Delea, Thanks to Kyone Wolf. And we'll be back with the nose tomorrow.
0: Pinky, I'm working on developing this maze, and I could really use your help.
2: Ugh, typical. Just because I'm a mouse, you think I'm really good at running mazes, huh? Frankly, Kevin, your stereotyping is ignorant, unimaginative, and offensive.
0: Well, there's a chocolate bar coated with peanut butter and topped with bacon bits in the middle.
2: I'm only doing this in the interest of science.